Today's podcast was a presentation given by Razi Imam from 113 Industries at ECRM Snack and Coffee, Tea, and Cocoa programs here in Las Vegas. 113 Industries did an analysis of social media conversations around those categories to determine what it was that consumers really wanted from them. And there's a lot of great insights here. We know you're going to get a lot out of this one, so check it out. Good evening, everyone. My name is Razi Imam, and um, this is my second presentation at ECRM. I have done one in Florida on supplements, the same um, concept. Uh, basically, I am um, a, a junk professor at Carnegie Mellon University. And what you're about to see is actual real products that have been designed and developed using this methodology. And the idea here is those products um, have both reached about 100 million in revenue in their first three years. So it's, um, I th we, we believe we are onto something. We've been doing it for seven years now. And we have a series of products that you are probably could find at the grocery stores where um, some of the ideas that were generated using this methodology had led to very rapid, rapid increase in success. The reason why I'm here today is because um, what happened was about uh, seven years ago, we, I was teaching a class at Carnegie and this, method, this uh, statistic from Nielsen was a report came out and they said that 92% of the products that consumer packaged good companies release failed to reach 50 million in revenue in the first three years. And that's considered, considered by the big food industry as a failure. Now I'm from the software background and for me to understand 92% of the times they fail is considered to be just an impossible statistic. Like how could you run a business with 92% failure rate um, of not reaching your, your ability to um, succeed? So we actually did a, a kind of like a design thinking workshop in our office. And we sat down with the team of professors and people around us. And we said, there's got to be a better way to figure out what the needs are. And the words that came out was unarticulated needs, needs that consumers don't generally talk about um, in focus groups. So when we studied, how do you find these unarticulated needs? They come from doing ethnographies, like big research projects where you are in somebody's home watching them do laundry, watching them cook breakfast, and then you find these behaviors. These behaviors are called compensating behaviors, behaviors that uh, I would say consumers tend to have when a product is not doing what it's supposed to do, they will compensate for it. And when a product comes out with a solution, the instant it's on the shelf, it flies off the shelf. So we said, what if there were compensating behaviors that we could find out in the data? How could we find compensating behaviors? Because that's the key to our success. And that's how what you're about to see today led us as an organization. We've done about 300 projects over the last seven years. And uh, they have all become um, quite successful, not necessarily all 100% of them, but they have been in different phases of success that I'll share with you. So that's a brief introduction of myself and my company and what we do. I'll also talk about snacking, coffee, tea, and what we found 
Remember, it takes us about eight weeks to run our algorithms to actually understand what's happening in a category. And I wanted to just share a few things, a few snippets that I think would be interesting. And I'm sure you already know about them, but I'm sure, uh, I hope you would find them, uh, find more color about what I'm about to share with you today. So um, the power of AI is that the methodology that you are seeing today is something that was used about 12 years ago by NSA. And it was really designed for very large companies that could afford it. Back in 2012, 2013, it got democratized, meaning companies like myself could use these algorithms and then run them and see what we could analyze just by understanding what people were talking about and see if you can extract insights from there. So here's an example. I love my iPhone X. I'm using the new iTunes app to stream the new Taylor Swift albums. Thanks, Apple. Okay? Now, what happens, what the AI does is it automatically starts to pull out behaviors. It starts to pull out who's talking, when are they talking, how are they talking. So we use the same methodology and we found that people, consumers, have very extensive commentaries. They have conversations about products and, and, and the whole categories. They even have visual media, reviews, influencers. I can find any information I want to now just by grabbing and buying data and analyzing it through the algorithm. So what happens is you start to find very interesting behaviors. Now, we are not talking about social listening. Social listening is a very known methodology by which you determine a reputation management, like is it good, is it bad, people love it, people hate it, it's sentiment analysis. This is behavior understanding. How are people buying a product in a category? What are they buying? When are they buying? How are they using it? That's what this is about. How are they spending? What are the lifestyles? What are the life hacks? How are they making decisions? And what we have realized is the need, as you all know today, has changed. This is the Maslow's theory that we teach at Carnegie, but I have to change this because we've realized that the Maslow theory is actually changing. If you don't have Wi-Fi, if you don't have a battery, you're dead. <laughs> so what we have realized that when the needs of consumers are changing, our consumers are so rapidly changing their behaviors that you have to adapt very rapidly and understand that before it hits you. Let me explain. This is an example of Starkist. There are customers, tuna fish. They were struggling with revitalizing their brand, their positioning, who they are, what they do, how they work, okay? And we did a project for them and we helped them understand what was happening in the world of millennials. Here's an example. Hey, here's another strange uh, thing that people are doing. I mentioned this last week. Uh, sales of canned tuna fish have plummeted. Canned tuna consumption is down more than 40% over the past three decades, and the tuna companies believe the reason is because millennials don't want to go to the trouble of opening a can. <laughs> The vice president of marketing for Stark has said, and this is a real quote, he said, a lot of millennials don't even own can openers. <laughs> I find that a little, that reason a little bit hard to believe. So we decided to put the theory to the test. We went on the street, we asked young people walking by to try to open a can of tuna. And, well, this is how that went. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. 
question? Yes. Can you open that can of tuna fish? Okay, I would try. It's been a while. Can you open a can of tuna fish? Mm. I mean, I'm supposed to know. I hope one eat in a minute. I'll try it. I always have problems with those stuff. Like... Uh, I don't know how to open those. I can't open it. Wait, so what happened here? Oh, I can't open it. can open it. There you go, try this. Try not to break that one, it's our last can opener. I can't do it. Did you break the other can opener? Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop here. So well, what's happening is your industry is changing, your consumers are changing. So the goal today is to share with you what the changes are happening in the coffee tea. Before I go there, I would just want to walk you through a case study that we did for Kraft Heinz. In 2013, they were in a category called the frozen meals. And it was double-digit declining. It was declining like a rock. It was just going down. And they had hired a lot of companies to help and innovate. And the innovation was mostly in how you um, heat the tray, how do you add more ingredients to it, how do you reduce the sodium. But nothing drove sales. And then, then they finally hired us through some luck. And I don't know how they even found out about us. We're a tiny company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is about 14 people. But we love what we do. So, they came to us and said, hey, could you help us figure out what is happening in the frozen meal aisle? So we looked at about 100,000 conversations of people buying frozen meals, consuming them. And something interesting came out of the data. And here's the thing. What do you see? I'm a professor, so I'm going to put you into test right now. What do you see? Anybody? Shoot out. Say it. Plastic. Plastic. What's the face look like, the lady? Depressed. Who said that? Depressed. Okay. Anything, an, another word for that? Not enthusiastic. Not enthusiastic? Confused. Confused? Uninspired. Uninspired? Concerned. Concerned? Dissatisfied. Dissatisfied? How about sad? Okay. This is an example of a graphic that I just took to represent the data. When we looked at the data, this is what I came out in thousands and thousands of people. I think lean cuisine is the saddest thing ever. There's nothing more depressing than eating a lean cuisine alone in a conference room where anyone walking by can see you, hashtag shame. Ever eat a lean cuisine and think I'm so alone? Eat a lean cuisine alone like a single 37-year-old lady that has two dogs and a bird. Another Friday night alone, eat a lean cuisine for dinner, lame. This was happening again and again and again in the data. So here is Kraft Heinz looking, working with Weight Watchers, going after the bikini bods and saying, how could you actually reduce weight? Whereas people, especially women, felt that if they were eating it, they were losers. There was a disconnect. 
And the disconnect was the relationship between frozen meal and them was broken. So the idea was to compensate. How did they compensate in this category? This is just one example. My Cabernet wine tastes so good, my Weight Watchers ice cream. Have a glass of wine with frozen meal to make you seem fancy. I find the chicken parmesan lean cuisine is paid best with boxed pink wine. Bought a bottle of wine that cost me more than $10 to pair with my lean cuisine. Just went on and on and on. They were fancying it up. So it was interesting. Here you are, the senior management of Kraft Heinz saying, go diet, go diet, go diet. Whereas women were thinking, I don't like this. It doesn't represent who I am. So the relationship was broken. So we did a whole design thinking workshop. And in the design thinking workshop, what came out was very interesting. Go diametrically opposite to their diet food. And they came out with two products, Smart Made and Devour. Both are trajectory at $100 million right now. Both just took off because it was diametrically opposite. The idea here is sometimes in focus groups, consumers don't say what they actually feel and want. They actually don't. But they share that information with friends and family and everybody and recipes and everything. So here's another example. By the way, this is Andrew Thiel telling us this was a great work done. But here's another example. Um, jo uh, juice, um, a concentrate juice was again on a double-digit decline. I'll quickly go through this one. It was ocean spray, cranberry juice. And they again hired us because the aisle was changing. Walmart and these people were saying that you better innovate because you know, Naked Juice and Adbala and all those juices were just absolutely killing them. So we looked at about 150,000 conversations. And from there, we found a very interesting behavior. Millennial women were drinking this juice out of an opaque flask. Any thoughts? Why would they do that? They don't want to reveal what they're drinking. They don't want to reveal. They're onto something there. Yep. Why? Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah, you UTI. Just because I like cranberry juice doesn't mean I have a UTI. Okay. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them saying, I really like cranberry juice, but whenever I buy, I feel the cashier is judging me like I have UTI or something. People ask me if I have a bladder problem if I, the way I drink cranberry juice. So the fastest growing millennial population, women, who love cranberry juice, are embarrassed by it because people my age, guys, sitting on the board saying, go UTI, go kidney health, go, go, go. Support that. That's what we are standing for. We don't even understand what truly is driving our adoption. So this was an interesting, they came out with a product, and we, we told them that if you just do cran apple, cran this, this is not going to work. So we came out with a product, they, they actually came out, this was sitting on the shelf for seven years, came out with a product called Pact, and it just took off. And then we saw something very interesting also. Women would come home and um, pour cranberry out of their bottle into a, either a wine glass or a crystal glass. They always drink it out of a crystal glass or a wine glass. Not always, but most often. And we couldn't understand why that was happening. What we realized is the color of the juice 
the texture of the juice, the experience of the juice was so powerful, <coughs> they didn't want to drink it out of a gla juice glass. They wanted it in, in a, more, a nicer glass. So they, we came up with an idea, and they actually came out with mocktails, which is another big idea for them. And Wall Street ran a whole article that a few categories of one in juice. Who owns the evening juice demand moment? Morning is owned by orange juice, apple juice, grapefruit juice, and then cranberry juice. But in the evening, who owns the cranberry? Who owns the juice market? Nobody. There was a whole demand moment waiting to be developed. So this was the old image. This is their new image. And these are some of our $100 million products that have actually come out. I've just given you a subset of our products that are actually hitting the market and making them, uh, making big. So let's talk about snacking. Uh, have I bored you enough? Are you guys okay? Do you want to hear it a little bit more? All right, okay. So snacking, we just ran a little bit of an analysis using our AI uh, to understand what was happening. And what came out was certain segments of behaviors. Remember, we don't segment on uh, demographics or psychographics. We don't segment on we only segment on behaviors because it doesn't matter to us if it's a millennial or a baby boomer. If they have the same behavior, you can sell to both of them. So the idea is that we learned out of 150,000 conversations, we just ran it very quickly just for this presentation today. We said, okay, what is the data really saying to us? And again, please take it with a grain of salt. It's just an analysis just to share with you what we found. And what we found was there were seven different categories of people coming out. The first one was the daily snacker. This is a habitual snacker, snacks out of boredom and satisfaction, satiation. Then comes the midnight snacker, the late night snacker, who loves to snack in the night. Then the parent who values the convenience. Then the wellness snacker, the traveler snacker, the dieter, and the sports snacker. These are the seven categories of behaviors that came out of our data. Now you'll say, Rosie, why are you bringing this to our attention? It's important for you to know when you're developing snacking products, what's actually happening as behaviors are concerned and how people are seeing them. They're not necessarily snacking based upon what they're eating. They're snacking because based on their behaviors. So it was interesting when we saw the evolution of the snacking in the data, we found that the job was to satiate at one time but now the job has changed of a snack. It is to maintain mental and physical health is what people are talking about. Let me exp I'll explain that in a few minutes. What's happening is snacking is not just a functional fuel anymore. It's an emotional fuel, okay? And that's a very important differentiation that you have to identify and understand. The key point is this is very, very powerful, in my opinion. It came out very quickly in the data. Snacking has not about meal replacement, which is it has done it, but it's become a more healthy way of living. And more importantly, it is competing. It actually is connecting, not competing, it's connecting with the lifestyle of Kalo, Paleo, Weight Watchers, and other ones. And the other thing is wellness is also an important, it's, you know, snacking is connected to alleviating anxiety and depression and eating disorders. It's just amazing how snacking, the word snacking, has changed completely in the last few, in the last one year. 
Of course, the sensory perceptions are also coming out, whether it's the taste, whether it's the texture and aroma. But more importantly, here's the big takeaway that I'd like you guys to think about. What we saw in the data was an interesting, and the slide is not doing justice to it because we weren't sure about it, but I'd like to share that with you. Snacking actually is moving away, in our opinion, to permissible diet, lifestyle snacking. What I mean by that is we're seeing mothers eat baby food for babies as a snack. In the data. Now, I don't know what you want to make of it, but it's very interesting. Why are they doing that? Because they believe if it's good enough for their children, it's a good snack for me. We're seeing it in the data. Now, whether it will become a big thing or not, I don't know. But I'm predicting that snacking, mothers snacking on their kids' food is becoming a big deal right now. And it's happening in the data. All right? So buyers should think about purchasing snacks and age agnostic, and you know, I'll go into the details. But let's talk about coffee, tea, and cocoa briefly, and then we'll stop, and then we'll take some questions. This was another great um, topic for me to take a look at, for our team to take a look at it. And what we found was, um, well, there were significant insights. We looked at almost, I mean, not we, but the system looked at almost a million conversations in one year. It was a lot of data. And we found something fascinating in this data as it relates to coffee. How many people are coffee people here? Oh, good. That's good. Then you'll find this interesting. What we found was, was three segments came out, behavior segments came out. And these are our names. Not necessarily the right names, but our names. The first one was the coffee novice who started drinking coffee very recently. You know. But the second and the third one got our uh, attention. The coffee learner and the coffee aficionado. What's happening here? Coffee is moving away from a beverage for caffeine to a beverage of choice. Okay? It is moving away, guys. It's becoming richer in its position. Whether we, you like it or not, this is coming in the data. So coffee learners who are getting into coffee are very interested in understanding the bean, the variety, the roasting, all of that. It's becoming a representation of who they are as, as people. It represents their personality, their lifestyle. And of course, the aficionado is the person who is like the god of coffee. I mean, he, he or she really feels determined to have the right coffee with the right temperature, with the right grind, with the right mixture, with the right process. <coughs> and it's becoming a standard now. That's happening. In tea, we are noticing six different uh, elements. Health, beverage variety, ease of preparation is very, very big. Flavorful experiences, versatility is becoming very big. Ability to customize is huge. So what does that mean? Let's talk about tea. In both cases, 
we're finding something very interesting. Now this, I, I debated whether I should bring this information to you or not. This is not anything new that I'm sharing that you guys already don't know. But you do know the headwind against sugar. Now how does it play a role in coffee and in tea and cocoa? One of the key things is coffee and tea, by the process of development, allows you to control the amount of sugar that you consume. Sugar is becoming the enemy. Okay, so for coffee aficionados and coffee learners, they don't even need sugar or sugar substitutes. So now, people are moving away from sugar, absolutely moving away. Whether it's happening now or it will happen in a couple of months or a year or two years, but absolutely move away from sugar. And then they are looking at options and looking at coffee. So whoever is in coffee, tea, they're on a very powerful trajectory because it's not just the aficionados or the value of your coffee or the value of your tea that is driving people to this category, but the fact that these two beverages can be had without sugar is one of the key aspects in the data. It's very interesting. So they're replacing, restricting, and of course, controlling the minimum for sugar. I mean, people were just talking about why tea, why sugar? It's because I, why tea, why coffee? Because I hate sugar. I don't want sugar. But coffee and tea gives me the, the necessary strength, the, the ability to deal with the fact that I can have a beverage without the sugar in it. So what's happening is, in our, in our opinion, the categories of two major people are going to grow. Coffee learner and the aficionado. These are the two people that are going to explode in the market, in our opinion. So if you have products for these two, that's fantastic. And then in the tea category, the ability to customize is going to be huge. So key takeaways. Consumers are willing to accept less sweet and satisfy sweet cravings. But more importantly, consumers want more control they want flavor, sensation, experience. They want to assist and wean themselves off sugar. So in summary, I'll just stop now because there's so much of information I wanted to share with you that a methodology like ours is not necessarily a focus group. It is not something that you do surveys. It is true, organic, pure understanding of what consumer behavior is today and what it would be in the next month, next year, and years to come. And that's the key aspect over here.